Well, this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and with me, as always, is uh, Eric Whitehead, engineer, technologist, and world traveler, and, of course, the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. Uh, gentlemen, welcome, and uh, welcome, too, to Dean Kurnot, who is uh, our guest today. Dean is the uh, Bright Light founder of Macro Risk Advisors, and they're in the business of generating ideas and executing the same ideas. Not the customers, mind you, the ideas only. And uh, Dean is one of the uh, leading thinkers on uh, complex, uh, seemingly abstruse, but actually quite down-to-earth concepts like uh, vol, volatility. We'll get into Dean's and, and we'll get into Dean's ideas in a moment. First, I, I, I don't know, Evan. I think it's I think it's high time to take stock of some of the goings-on in this week of this curious year, 2020. You told me something I had not heard before, which is that the uh, the chairman and CEO is that what uh, the head of the Barstool Sports calls it, Portnoy, right? Yes, Dave Portnoy. Dave Portnoy is even now, as we speak, interviewing the president of the United States. Is that correct? There's already a picture on Twitter. He has tweeted, "If any sitting president of the United States invites me to go to the office, uh, Oval Office, I go." Yeah. Well, um, as you know, I think. Dean flies a little higher in the rarefied financial atmosphere than Barstool Sports. But Barstool Sports, of course, is the um, is the go-to site for ideas that are happening now. In grants, we are in the business of, of kind of a deep, long-view ideas. Uh, in fact, I might go so far as to say that we are the Barstool Sports of long-form financial journalism. But Barstool Sports really has the call on what's happening in the next five minutes. Yeah. Portnoy's become the avatar for day trading, and I think he tweeted out about a month or two ago, rule number one, stocks go up. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Yeah. Related to that, I saw a headline today that also kind of ties into this. So a tech executive in the Seattle area was charged with paycheck protection program fraud and depositing the money from the loan into his Robinhood account. So he took money from a government from a program meant to protect jobs and instantly started day trading. Well, I guess that's protecting some jobs. <laughs> Maybe somebody at uh, Macro Risk Advisors is advising this guy in Seattle on uh, on his Robinhood account. I think probably not. But before we, we talk to Dean, I would like to mention um, a kind of a sad thing, the death of Annie Ross, who was one of the great uh, jazz vocalists of our age and the preceding age, I guess, if you're talking about generations. She was 89 years old, and she was uh, one of the members of a group called Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross. And I want you to listen for just about uh, 90 seconds or two minutes to uh, to their uh, rendition of a tune called Cloudburst. You'll hear Annie's voice. I was blue and I was always wearing a frown Because my gal had turned me down Then we met and you met I knew from the first You were my love, cause that's when the old gray cloudburst My heart really flew the day you crossed my eye I hope that we do will never say goodbye Clouds of gray and silver linings when they're reversed I found your love and that's when the old gray cloudburst And what made me think of Cloudburst, besides the news of the of the death of uh, Annie Ross, was tuned in. We have missed baseball, most of us, many of us. It was back last night, and um, the Yankees played the Nats. And who should throw out the first pitch but Dr. Fauci, Tony Fauci, the eminent epidemiologist. And he lived the nightmare of every single aging, middle-aged or aging American male. All right, you get the call, right? You get the call throughout the first pitch. At first, you think, oh, my God, this is fabulous. I've been dreaming about this for decades. And then you think, what if I blow it? All right, so he's on the mound, right? He goes into the stretch. He rears back. He fires. 
Well, let's the New York Post headline take it from here. Dr. Fauci flattens the curve right into the ground. He threw it about 60 feet wide. I suspect a little bit. He loaded up with Vaseline before that. But my goodness, I, I don't know, Evan, Dean and Eric. It, it's a hard thing. All right. It was a, um, it was a tough one. Yeah. Dean Kernot, you came to Grants, invited us to check out a graph. And I think everyone can hold us up to the microphone. This is our want in this podcast. Hold up the chart. As you can see, ladies and gentlemen, it's a, it's a chart of, uh, of Tesla, uh, which Doc, as I think Dave Portnoy could attest, only goes up. That's what it does in life. It goes up and then it goes up some more. And uh, somehow, Dean, in your in your perception of this, the rise of Tesla is connected with other things that we all ought to know about. Explain to us what this Tesla phenomenon means and how it's tied into volatility. Well, first, thank you guys very much for taking the time to have me on your podcast. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Grant and looking forward to uh, to the conversation. Uh, Tesla, yes. So uh, probably the poster child for some of the speculation that is making its way into the market. Perhaps it is uh, Davy Daytrader and his legion of folks on Robinhood. Um, I have to say, I, I think that the free trading, not having a commission, really does change the profile for how folks look at getting into and out of things. The other thing that really changes behavior is price. You know, there's an old adage, um, never buy the back test, right? Don't worry about, um, don't make your decisions based on back tests and using historical data. Well, I'll tell you, um, people don't tend to really pay too much attention to that. And the very, very best back test there is for folks is what happened yesterday, or perhaps what happened the day before yesterday. In other words, price reinforces behavior. I think that's one of the key things that we've seen time and time and time again, that um, this notion of bubbles um, and that's a kind of a loaded term that people argue about. But th this idea that um, asset prices can can levitate and keep going much further than we think the fundamentals uh, should justify is a reality that we've come across just time and time again. So then the past performance is, in fact, a guarantee of future results. I think that's the part uh, when they make that disclaimer, right, that it's not the guarantee. People just mm. skip that part. <laughs> And well, they it's, do it's, tend it's to... like, the, when you open up a, a bottle of a leaf or aspirin, do you take the time to uh, open that little piece of paper with the 64-point uh, type and and, uh, and study the uh, list of possible side effects? Right, exactly. Let me get to it. Is, is this a source idea of reflexivity where price affects the story and story affects the price and it becomes kind of an inextricably linked going up and both down? I couldn't believe more in the notion of reflexivity. I've quoted it a million times. It really is a kind of cornerstone of my own framework. Of, of Define it for us, Dean. It's a very fancy word. Define reflexivity. Yeah, it is It is a fancy word. And, and Soros, I just think it's a brilliant concept, which is, I take it a couple of different ways. One is that, sure, in the long-term fundamentals matter. Uh, you know, if, if fundamental factors of things like earnings don't ultimately dictate where stock prices wind up, well, then we've got a big problem on our hands in terms of the, you know, the, how we think about markets. But in the short term and even in the medium term, there are these other forces, and I would just call them financial forces, that create feedback mechanisms, feedback loops that can be self-reinforcing. And so let me give you a good example is in the period preceding the, uh, the great financial crisis. 
We all knew there was a substantial buildup in leverage. We knew there was a housing bubble. It was mocked largely, right? Uh, you guys focused on it quite a bit. Timing it, of course, was very, very difficult. You know, even the three or four folks featured in the big short, they happened to do a very good job, not just isolating it, but also timing it. And it's very easy to sort of see something happening. But if your timing is wrong, then it's impossible to exploit. So if we go back you know, to that period, what was happening in the financial economy? Well, housing prices were rising for a number of different reasons. Credit was getting extended. And lending standards continued to get weaker and weaker because if you're in the business of lending, these are the conditions under which money's being lent. And you may think it's too generous uh, in terms of the credit terms. If you want to be in that business, this is the price. And so as more and more people have access to credit, housing prices spiral higher. And then, of course, the machinery of Wall Street comes in and builds leverage structures around it. And that's where, again, the whole thing just tends to reinforce itself. And so what Soros says is, you know, we, we can't actually argue that prices and fundamentals interact properly because price is a part of the fundamental. Um, and that goes on both sides. You know, when you get a very ugly deleveraging, um, as we saw in the aftermath of the financial crisis, uh, 2008, 2009. And then, of course, in March, we saw something that was self-reinforcing on the downside that required, you know, just a unbelievable amount of government and Fed intervention. And so to me, price is just such a critical part of this component. Price is money. And someone who's making money on something is much more likely to basically restack those gains back into the same vehicle. Things get very stretched. And just one thing, going back to the um, housing crisis, part of the reason why lenders got so easy in the terms that they lent on to consumers was for a year or two in the mid-2000s, the loss given defaults, that is, the loss that a bank would take if a home mortgage loan went bad, was actually negative. That meant house prices were going up so much that when loans defaulted, banks actually made money by basically reselling that house. So for a while, it seemed like the cost of credit was negative. There was no cost of credit. And that's part of the how price affects psychology. There's always some institutional considerations that play into this. There are oftentimes regulatory considerations. The incentive structures uh, are very difficult to you know, understand in advance, and they evolve. You know, the incentive structure, as an example, that that was in place in this period in, in March of 2020 um, was one that was created in the aftermath of, of the financial crisis. It was about essentially reducing the bank's ability to take lots of risk and to have uh, lots of leverage and value at risk on their balance sheets. Um, and so, other participants were encouraged to come into the government bond market, and they were relative value hedge funds that uh, used a tremendous amount of leverage in order to make these very minute mispricings uh, exploitable. And so when the treasury market started to really falter, those types of relationships got massively dislocated. And the very first thing the Fed had to do in March, and again, I know you guys have been uh, all over this, but the amount of intervention by the Fed in the government bond market, I mean, I think this is the untold story, is that the first market to crash in 2020 was the risk-free market, right? And it was just a, a function of a lot of these, what they call basis trades, gone wrong. So it's always about incentivization. I think you're probably wondering who is sponsoring this podcast. The Fall Grants Conference is uh, the sponsor of this particular episode of Grants Interest Rate Observer of the Air. And um, uh, this is going to be uh, one of the great conferences. First of all, it's like a 
it's like the 2020 baseball season. You know, you, you kind of pine for it, don't you? And uh, at long last, it's there. The difference is that you cannot go to the ballpark. I think that's correct. Is it not, Eric? Yes, you cannot, you cannot yes. do it. They, 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 they positively won't let you in. But you are welcome. You and a maximum of 124 others are invited to the cavernous ballroom of the Plaza Hotel on Fifth Avenue and 58th, 59th Street. And, uh, you know, come and see it in person. I, the, the hotel has rooms for you if you're coming from out of town. You know, there's all sorts of rooms spread out. This uh, ballroom has a capacity of 380 to 400. And in times past, we've had the fire department uh, admonish us not to overpack the room with uh, our fans. Uh, no such trouble this time. 125 people, tops. Um, you can uh, come and see it live or in splendid isolation. You may log on to our webcast. Uh, we've been doing these webcasts now for what, Eric, three or four years, I think, and they've become very professional and extremely smooth. Come and see it. Uh, so, you know, the speakers include uh, Jim Chanos and uh, Stephanie Kelton on modern monetary theory, the former governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, John Paulson. The list goes on. So, uh, where else would you rather be? October 20th at the Plaza. We look for you there or on the World Wide Web. Thanks for coming. As you noted, the paradoxically, the, uh, the, the risk-free market was the one that got into trouble first in March. But let us fast forward to July and to the stock that never goes down. And uh, to paraphrase from the Fed, not only does Tesla not go down, but it doesn't even think about going down. Now, how does price volatility and uh, this curious world of 2020 all figure into this uh, singular phenomenon. Yeah. So the um, as I said, the, the price action reinforces behavior in so many ways. And I think a lot of that can be uh, found in, in just looking at volatility. So people look at the, the realized volatility of an asset. And basically, that's just a fancy way of saying is how much is it moving on a daily basis? So here's a couple of statistics. One is the, the realized volatility of Tesla is almost 100% this year. So 97.6% is the uh, overall realized volatility. What we've done is, I think it's very interesting, is you basically split the series into the realized volatility on the up days and then the realized volatility on the down days. Um, if you were to do the same exercise for the S&P, you would find over time that realized volatility on the down days is significantly higher than on the up days. No surprise, right? Markets crash down. They generally don't really crash up. Um, so, so that is at the index level. Now, Tesla is a whole different beast. I mentioned uh, the realized vol for the entire year is 90, 90, let's call it 98%. Now, now do realized, you know, stop there one. What does 98% volatility mean? So it's basically just the, the annualized standard deviation of the daily returns. You know, it's that it's formula that we learned in our statistics class that just looks at how big the daily changes are relative to the, the mean movement. And a little shorthand is you can essentially divide my 98% number, divide it by 16, and that's going to give you a very good approximation for the daily move. So 98 divided by 16, let's call it six. And so... I'm willing to bet that if I looked at all the daily moves and just looked at the absolute value of them, it doesn't matter if they're up or down, it's about 6% per day. So that's pretty huge. You know, this is a very volatile stock. The real interesting part is that the volatility on the up days actually exceeds the volatility on the down days. So the volatility in the up days is a little bit higher than 98%, um, and the volatility in the down days is only 97%. And so this is the point, is that, uh, and this is, again, where 
behavior is reinforced by the movement of the asset itself. If I'm a derivatives trader and I'm at one of these banks and my sales my salesperson yells that he's got XYZ hedge fund and that hedge fund wants to buy some upside calls in Tesla. Now, my job is to make a good price, don't make the salesperson look bad, try to win the business, but also try to not lose my shirt in the process of committing capital. The, the way in which this stock is moving up, the force of some of these up moves is so significant. And this is the, this is the second part, is that typically when a stock, let's say in the S&P, when the S&P goes up, the VIX goes down. In Tesla, when Tesla goes up, the Tesla VIX, whatever that is, the implied volatility for the option, it goes up. So I could get absolutely burned on this trade by selling these calls. They're almost unhedgeable. And back to Davy Day Trader, he's got a legion of folks listening, and, and these Robinhood folks are saying, well, let's see, what's moving today? Huh, Tesla. Tesla moved yesterday. It keeps going up. And so this passion for the stock and then to actually engage in the options, you've got all these buyers of these upside options. And each one of them is a small player in the market, but in aggregate, it's kind of a swarm. And collectively, maybe through the guidance of Davy Day Trader, they're moving these volatility levels. And so the Goldman trader, the Morgan Stanley trader who's selling these options has experienced potentially significant losses because the stock rips higher, the option prices go up because the volatility goes up, and you could have a very difficult risk management problem on your hands. And again, this goes back to the reflexivity. It all kind of ties in. And of course, there's always a great story, right? This, this company mm -hmm. is changing the world. Now, Dean, um, Dean, what, what was the last time we saw something like this in the market? What does this remind you of? This is one of my absolute best indicators of speculative excess. That's the first thing I would say. Stocks up, vol up is an indication that, one, it's probably got more to go. <laughs> you know, bubbles tend to reinforce themselves and keep going. But I'll throw a couple of, a couple of historical events at you. One, of course, the tech bubble itself. Uh, remember Greenspan, 1996, right? Irrational exuberance. Well, he was right. He was only four years early. Four that's years. Nothing. Yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> but from 97, 98, 99, 2000, the, the triple Q or the NDX, it went up a lot and its vol went up a lot as well. That's the biggest example. But there are a couple other important sub-examples, and I want to point one out because I know it's going to be near and dear to you. So crude oil in 2008, summer of 2008, same thing. Crude got to 145. The vol exploded as it was rising. Gold. This is, I know, passionate for you guys, uh, for me as well. Um, in fact, I was on your podcast about a year and a half ago when we were looking at gold vol, and it was stuck at eight or nine, and it just felt like a really, really good deal. Well, that vol is no longer. You know, gold is up a lot, and gold vol is now in the 20s. Um, it's, it's reinforcing itself. We, we saw this dramatically in the sovereign debt crisis for gold in, in late 2011. And then the other one I, I just want to point out is Bitcoin. This is a real right tail type of asset. You know, no one knows what it's worth. That's kind of part of the seduction of the asset class. But in late 2017, as this thing went from 3,000 to 10,000 to almost 20,000, the vol completely exploded. The options markets were pretty nascent at the time. They still are relatively uh, in their early days. But you know that's an asset historically that has exhibited a lot of this skew, but to the upside. Um, and you know we saw the same thing with Bitcoin, right up to 20,000, and it was down to 8,000 months later. Dean, is, is Tesla alone these days in exhibiting, in, 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 let's take it in the stock world, is Tesla alone these days in exhibiting this characteristic of price up, 
vowel up? Or does it have company? And does the existence of company, such be it be, does, does this mean that there is a bubble-like character to the stock market as a whole? It's the best example. I think it's one of the more prominent examples. Uh, but it, it isn't alone. And I think this is where folks have to be careful. I'll look at Amazon, okay? Biggest stock in the world, or got to be close. In same, similar sort of thing, its volatility on the up days is actually a little higher than its volatility on the down days. It's not substantially higher, but you, again, you have these circumstances where it's impossible to be short this stock, right? It's certainly very difficult and risky to be short the options on the stock. And in some ways, it's that feedback loop of profits and loss uh, and risk that feed back into the, the, the way in which the stock works. And when I look at the biggest of the big cap tech stocks, Amazon, Microsoft, and to see this kind of behavior, we're not talking tech bubble of 2000, right? This is not that. This is much, much more realistic, but it is frothy. It is something that we're supposed to you know, pay close attention to, if only because last I checked, these three stocks, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft, I've never seen anything like this. They're worth 34% of the entire triple Q in terms of market cap. So just the, the arithmetic of the leadership failing is something that people have to pay close attention to. Dean, in contrast to the dot-com era, then the economy is booming and a lot of the dot-com stocks, which were very small or pre-revenue, if they could deliver on their promises, they could actually have huge growth you know, in front of them. Today, the chasm between what's happening in the real economy and the stock market is quite huge. The real economy is not doing great. And these companies like Amazon are just so large in terms of their revenue, their assets, their market cap, that for them to compound in the past like they have, or compound in the future like they have in the past, just becomes mathematically very difficult. I'd love to kind of like contrast like what happened in the dot-com era and how this might be different. Yeah, I think it's, anytime you look at that dot-com era, you're going to find it difficult to get comparisons that are that that egregious. You know, Amazon, Microsoft, from what I can tell, these these companies are making money hand over fist. Certainly, you know, they are the beneficiary uh, of a lot of the pain that some of the more traditional real economy business models are experiencing. Um, but as you said, the, the growth multiples that folks are increasingly putting on some of these big cap tech stocks, um, it doesn't leave a lot of margin for error. I think that's, you know, the worry. And, and you know, of course, we kind of step back just, just to the, the broad kind of sense of where the economy is relative to the fundamentals. I think what people who are comfortable with the stock market here, the only argument to me they can make is that the Fed and the government are a critical part of the fundamentals and may remain so. And that's not a judgment. It's just an observation. Does the fact that gold volatility rises as the price rises, does this worry you uh, as, a, as an investor or a speculator in gold? Is gold getting itself getting frothy? It probably is. I think you were the first to say that gold has no quarterly earnings report. It's got no management team. That's kind of part of the story, right? We like that. Um, you know, it, it allows our ma imagination to run wild. This is the nature. Uh, again, I don't love the word bubble, but it's the nature of something that's a speculative almost self-defining path of, uh, of an asset. It, it is different now than in 2011. The, the pathway for which gold ripped higher and the implied volatility ripped higher was considerably more aggressive at that time. So it's, you know, gold's just going up basically every day. It's not going up 3%. It's going up 80 basis points, 50 basis points, a percent. 
the, the other one that's to me getting really interesting to look at is silver. Right. Silver is that volatility surface, as they call it, has really gotten accentuated. The amount of option premium for the very far out of the money calls is, is astounding to look at. And so that to me is maybe that's the one that follows gold higher. And, and again, it's just a recognition that we are in monetary no man's land and yes. uh, we probably have more, more coming. Well, you know, uh, gold uh, and silver as monetary metals compete both with interest rates and with credit. And both of those competitors are under one cloud, kind of cloud or another. Um, what about bonds? Here, you know, it must be still the largest asset class in the world. Uh, central banks have it uh, kind of a, a full Nelson. Uh, so volatility is perhaps artificially suppressed. Uh, but what does uh, this train of reasoning and observation about volatility tell you with respect to uh, bond, bonds and bond prices? I think it's jumping off the page right now that the that Powell has spoken and that the market has taken him very, very seriously. Um, so if you, for example, look at implied volatility for the two-year note, the five-year note, the 10-year note, they are all at all-time lows. Well, I don't say all-time lows, but in the zeroth percentile out several years. You have to go you know, back pretty far to find options that are as skinny in price as this. And, and I think it's, it's really, Powell saying, as you alluded to before, we're not even thinking about raising rates. You're in the business of advising your clients how to hedge for um, things going wrong and going bump in the night. Given the extraordinary low implied volatility in um, the Treasury yield curve, are there any kind of intriguing ways that investors can offset the risk of the Fed getting it wrong or for the um, feedback loops in the equity market breaking down and no longer supporting prices going you know, skyward? The, the trade that um, we, we've liked, and, and listen, we're not. it's very difficult to predict the future. What we try to do is look at the set of prices on offer in the options market and just try to um, think about the types of things that might be overlooked. And one of the things that might be overlooked is a outcome that, um, you know, Dr. Fauci's uh, poor arm notwithstanding, uh, but, uh, you know, perhaps it would be a, a wonderful thing if somehow we made some progress here and that this economy got um, back on its feet even just a little bit. Um, and and so what I'm saying is the the price of of that, that there might be some reversal of this incredibly low interest rate environment is not at all entertained by the market via low yields and certainly not by the options market via such low option prices. So we've we've been working with clients on, again, th these are probably throwaway premiums. It, it's probably the case that these won't pay off, but just thinking about what the market's allowing you to bet on in the sense that interest rates nudge up a little bit from here. You know that uh, the worst case scenario isn't realized, and that somehow the economy, you know, does have the ability to kind of re-engage more than folks are are thinking. And if that's the case, there's there's a there's a very quick snapback in interest rates that you could capitalize on just via these very cheap option prices. Or maybe uh, there's an unscripted inflation. You know, what's, it seems to me that inflation is uh, one of the uh, most contrary notions around today. People, you know, we've all, I think, more or less absorbed the lesson of the past 40 years that uh, even as Tesla only goes up, interest rates only go down, and uh, the Fed is there to uh, uh, prolong uh, that particular trend. So what happens if uh, the Fed turns, out, Fed turns out not to be in charge of the rate of inflation? and it takes uh, an uh, unanticipated lurch to the upside, then perhaps these options make it very interesting. 
Absolutely. The um, it, it, what, what to me is so interesting is you know you have this tremendous sudden stop of the economy, a massive risk off, and then the cleanup program, right? Which is the the, the Fed, but also the government having to put forth more public money of assistance, you know, toward trying to stabilize the economy, repair the damage done to the labor market. And so what do you, what happens? You get a massive risk off, interest rates rally to the lowest yields we, we've seen, and then the government comes in and issues more debt in a short period of time than we've ever, ever seen. That's to me a very, I don't know who buys, well, I do know who buys these options, or sorry, buys buys this paper, but boy, it doesn't feel like a good deal. You know, um, you mentioned inflation. The nominal yield on the 10-year is 60 basis points. The implied break-even inflation rate is almost 1.5%. So my real yield on the 10-year is minus 90 basis points. And you have to go back to the period right before the taper tantrum in 2013 to see something so low. Look, my my bet is that the Fed just kind of keep its only mechanism is to keep this dynamic in place. I think what what I hear from investors oftentimes is like, okay, well, what's the escape valve for a situation like this? And that's where gold enthusiasts have really, you know, started to assert themselves. On the actual inflation side, you know, that's another really interesting one to think about because we do have an economy that's just less able to, you know, support complex supply chains. You could easily see that one of the outcomes here is just you have to accept more frictions. You know, the economy is not as dynamic. And so there are higher prices. Excuse me, might there not be an escape valve also in the currency markets? Uh, dollar exchange rate uh, seems to be weakening. Might this be uh, a market that is registering some doubt as to the long-term efficacy of these zero interest rates and massive public borrowings? I think so. Uh, I, I think with, with FX, some people call it the, the ugly contest, right? Who, who, can, who can debase more effectively. And I I don't think anyone can debase more effectively than the U.S., but all of these other countries, you know, when we think about the dollar versus the euro, similar sort of challenges on on that front, and that their rates aren't going anywhere for a long period of time either. And again, kind of going back to uh, going back to gold, uh, you know, that that's where it it can't be debased, right? And I know this is near and dear to your heart, but um, I do think the recent weakness in the dollar is telling us something about the views of just the longevity of the U.S.'s problem. Um, it's a it's a sad and frustrating thing. Um, but uh, boy, we, we you know you look at our our curves versus versus what's happened in Europe and and how successful they were in quelling this thing, and uh, we, we've just not been. And maybe that's perhaps what that dollar weakness is telling us. Dean, is there any play that you're advising your clients about uh, with respect to the upcoming national elections? The elections are really um, interesting, and people are certainly kind of waiting. The, there's some calculations you can do around the options that expire right before the election versus those that expire right after. And you can do a little math, and, and you can estimate what the market is telling you for the implied one-day move for the election itself. It's about a three uh, percent, which is would would be about two times a regular move uh, in terms of the current volatility environment. Hedging is very costly. Upside or, upside or downside? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we're not that smart. We uh, we just tell you we just tell you magnitude. <laughs> we just tell you magnitude. I was, I was hoping um, for a political tip. 
Yeah, um, it, it's a very tricky environment. You know, I've come on your podcast before and volatility was always much lower. And here, boy, they don't give these options away. Um, it's it's a VIX well down from its highs, but still very, very expensive. If you go out to December and you want to buy some put options, the market charges you an arm and a leg. So it, it's not obvious, unfortunately, what to do. And my sense is that unless some of these volatility levels really come in, and if it's, there is this, this view that the election's got just too much uncertainty um, in terms of market impact, people are going to really have to think a lot about how much risk they want to have you know, into, that, um, into that election. Yes. Could the near zero yield on the treasury, uh, the treasury curve actually be self-defeating? And the reason I ask is there's a lot of different trading strategies. On the retail side, you can think of 60-40, where you hold 60% of your portfolio in stocks and 40% in bonds. And the bonds are supposed to offset the risk in your stocks. Or more complex ones like risk parity, where you hold a levered portfolio of treasury futures to offset losses against your stock portfolio. But with the treasury yield so low, there's not much room for treasury bonds to rally much in price. So if there were a sell-off in stocks, some of these portfolios might be forced to just be gross overall and sell treasuries. It's a big problem that you point out. It's uh, If you just think about the average pension fund and trying to meet a 6.5-7% bogey just seems so unrealistic. It's always been unrealistic, but now especially so when some portion of that portfolio is supposed to own an asset that's got a dated yield of 60 basis points. That is really, really tricky. Now, of course, leverage leverage it up, Dean. <laughs> yeah, you just got to throw some leverage. I always thought it was uh, pretty amazing that one of the big pensions just announced that they were thinking about utilizing leverage, uh -huh. right? Their return profile, which the return profile itself is supposed to be a risk-free return is, is, is how they pension world, they think about it. And I was like, okay, you're using leverage to make a risk-free return. That doesn't seem to make any sense. Uh, but no, if you think of the same very... pension fund that I am, they were using leverage to buy more private equity, which itself is leveraged. <laughs> exactly. It's an impossible. We, we've always known it's been impossible, right? That's been the case with pension math for quite some time. Uh, but there's been this incredibly long, I know that Grant's interest rate observer was founded when the Tenure was yielding what 15%, and you know it's down to 60 basis points, right? So um, this long tailwind of rising bond prices uh, has been extraordinary in so many different ways, and who knows? Maybe there's more juice left in the trade. It, it what I will say, Evan, is that it does still do a job offsetting the risk off days. In other words, if I were to run the correlation between stock and bond prices, I would still see that they were pretty negatively correlated. So on a daily basis, they are offsetting one another. That doesn't change the fact that if I set up my portfolio, the construction is very challenging when one part of the mix is only yielding 60 basis points. The tricky part is that um, the, the Fed in trying to, quote unquote, support financial conditions, the and it, it's always unknowable what the cause and effect is here in terms of what the Fed's role in having these rates be so low or the extent to which they're just market clearing prices that reflect, you know, a, a very difficult environment. But when the yields are so low, people do get forced into what I would say are dangerous decisions. And uh, again, things like selling volatility, that becomes a yield enhancement trading strategy that can do well for periods of time, but is subject to massive drawdowns as we saw in March. So that's the tricky part. Dean, here's a, a question concerning our economic geography. Um, you, Dean Kernut, father of three, live in Rye, New York, 
and commute to Manhattan, right? And uh, where you have your office, and I presume that your employees commute from other places, not all of them live in Manhattan. If I may pry, what are your plans with respect to reverting to the commutation life of February? And have you given any thought to just uh, kind of making a dispersed office environment the way forward and uh, taking up less office space in New York City and uh, making fewer rides on Metro North and generally changing the way you do business? It is funny you should ask. Uh, We made the decision uh, to fully close our New York office. We have a number of colleagues that are coming in from whether it's Long Island or New Jersey or Westchester or Connecticut and uh, did not feel comfortable asking them to commute each day. And uh, it's just unclear that the when you step back and look at the value proposition of being in New York City, first and foremost, it's proximity to your clients. And uh, as a sell-side business trying to get people's attention, we thrive on the connectivity of uh, in-person meetings. And right now, those aren't, you know, not, uh, those aren't really happening. Um, so we have uh, really retooled our business, as have a number of the larger firms. Um, we're fully work from home. We've got the technology uh, supporting our business with, with Zoom and, and you know, advanced connectivity on the Bloomberg side. Um, and so for now, we are, um, we are working from home. I'll tell you what I would say is that this change that's been thrust upon us, of course, is so challenging in so many ways and doesn't really offer much flexibility for a lot of businesses, the lion's share of the businesses that require you to be there. But for the more uh, the, the businesses that deliver insights and thought process and solutions, it really opens up a very interesting new world. And I keep asking myself, what did we lose? Well, we lost, um, as I said, the ability to be in front of clients uh, personally. Who aren't there. Right, exactly. We, we lose some of the kind of kinetic energy that comes from being in the same room and watching the, watching the tape together and talking about ideas. I think we'll, we'll post a an office, kind of a regional office nearby, and give people an opportunity to go there. But what I think you also pick up are a number of things. One, I think you know the ability to to concentrate and to to really focus actually improved quite a bit in in the work from home environment. And then once you decide to just go virtual, what I think is very exciting, specifically for us, is that the pool of applicants that can work here. They don't have to live in Connecticut or New York City. You know, we've we've got the technology and the onboarding process really nailed down. And so talking to folks that don't necessarily live right around, you know, Grand Central or can get commute into New York City really opens up a new world. It opens up a new world as well, Dean, for the New York City tax base. Uh, for Indeed. the details, for the details of which you may, uh, ladies and gentlemen, read the current issue of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. So, ladies, so we do have some subscriptions left, and we have some, uh, I think, some seats left in the uh, October 20th conference. So we'll see you there. Uh, Jim, will, uh, so who are some of the speakers for the conference this uh, this fall? Oh well, um, it's, it's, uh, I I hate to uh, to name some names and not name them all. I'm reaching for a piece of paper so that. Uh, I will not forget nobody. Should we take them alphabetically, Evan? I think that's the fairest way. Uh, Jim Chanos. Only fair way. The, the noted short seller. Monica Erickson, uh, who is an authority on the corporate debt market. Bruce Flatt, 
who knows all about New York City real estate, and won't he have a story to tell? Dylan Grice, the uh, noted thinker and uh, quite witty thinker about markets and investments, is going to fly in from the old continent. Stephanie Kelton will be speaking. She is the um, she's an advisor to uh, Bernie Sanders, is going to tell us all about modern monetary theory. Mervyn King, he should run a central bank. Yeah, that one, Bank of England. Uh, Joe Lawler, who is a, a short seller, uh, who specializes in biotech, who has, uh, I think, a few thoughts on uh, the pharma business and perhaps on the vaccine hunt. Henry Maxey, who is um, one of the most accomplished of the British tribe of uh, value-seeking investors. And uh, John Paulson, who needs no introduction. He's, he's, the, uh, he's talked about featuring prominently in the big short. That's John Paulson, who has gone on to um, make a different set of specialties. So anyway, that's the lineup, and it promises to be merely great. And we'll see you there, and uh, we'll be back on the air, I think, uh, before very long. We're going to take a vacation. Eric, we, I think Eric is is flying out to Portland, Oregon with a family for his vacation just to uh, – but he's, he's kind of an adventurous seeker. I think that's – I want to see a little bit of the Northwest and uh, drop in on the riots. And uh, uh, we have – let's see. But next week, I think, Eric and Evan, is our final issue before we go on vacation in August, and we'll be back in September. Perhaps we'll have one more podcast before then. But ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for listening. Dean, especially, I thank you for dropping by and uh, sharing some of these most interesting and provocative ideas with us. Always a pleasure. And ladies and gentlemen, happy summer to you. Happy baseball. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, I hope. Jim Grant, on behalf of uh, The Current Yield. Thank you.